You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. The uh, text we have to ponder this morning comes from our gospel lesson, Luke chapter 9. We are becoming more and more aware every day that we no longer live in a culture, in a world that is heavily influenced by a Christian worldview. In fact, the world seems to be get, becoming more and more hostile to a Christian message. You only have to think about what ISIS is doing in the Middle East, especially to Christians there, or what ISIS-inspired terrorists are doing here in the United States, including last week in Orlando, Florida. Or you can consider how Christians are being pressured and shamed in a culture that wants to call evil good and good evil, that wants to elevate sexual temptation up to the level of one's core identity or sexual sin into some sort of bizarre new pagan worship. The secularist culture is finding new and ever more creative ways to silence the Christian message, to pressure us. Don't you at least sometimes want to be like James and John and just want to say, Lord, it's so frustrating down here now. They're not listening to us. They're not listening to your message. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring your judgment. Bring your wrath. Send your fire down from heaven and consume them. You worked for Elijah. You got their attention. Why not try that again, Lord? And then you realize you've become, I've become another th sons of thunder, another James and John, and we hear Jesus' rebuke then ringing in our ears. The spirit of our old Adam, even when that old Adam thinks it's mimicking faithfulness, comes through again. But in our text, Jesus is teaching his disciples of the faithful attitude, the humble attitude that it will take to share his gospel to this world for another day. The Samaritans are actually spared fire so they can hear that message on another day. Luke 9, according to the commentators like Art Just, um, is considered the narrative center, the transition point of the gospel that Luke is sharing with us. Luke 9.51, our first verse, is actually that very first verse of that transition point. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. In this chapter, just before this central verse, we have a number of other key stories, like the feeding of the 5,000 and Peter's confession and the transfiguration. And two different times, Jesus tells his disciples why he is setting his face to go to Jerusalem. First, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. And then later, he says, and I love this, let these words sink into your ears. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The people of Samaria rejected Jesus, but they rejected him for the wrong reason. They thought he was going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple rather than their place of worship at Mount Gerizim. What they didn't realize, and what his own disciples did not yet realize, that he was going to Jerusalem 
to become the temple, to become the temple sacrifice, to be rejected and to suffer the payment for the sins of the whole world, and to conquer even death itself through his resurrection. We learn in Luke's second book, the book of Acts, that many people in Samaria did eventually let these words sink into their ears that Jesus was their atoning sacrifice and became his faithful followers through the witnessing of the apostles and the evangelists that God sent. But we also learn that the pushback against Jesus' message continued throughout those years. And the apostle James was the very first apostle to be martyred for the faith. Last month here on campus, actually up in the president's room, we had a very extraordinary conversation with a former atheist agnostic who recently came to faith in Jesus. This conversation was an outgrowth of the growing relationship we here at Concordia Seminary are having with Wash U Christians in the area of religion and science. Lizzie epitomized our secular world. She's a Washington University philosophy professor, philosophy of science professor from New York. She was raised in an unchurched home in an agnostic community. Her mother had taken her to religious services, Roman Catholic services on Christmas and Easter, but only for the aesthetic experience of that grand worship service, not for the spiritual beliefs. She grew up in suburban New York and said there were only three girls in her entire high school that people knew were Christians. She described that for her, religion was something akin to alchemy, something you knew that people believed in in the past, but wasn't really pertinent to think about now. She wasn't hostile to the Christian faith. She was a second or third generation atheist agnostic. She just didn't think about it. But upon coming to Washington University, another faculty member developed a friendship with her and shared with her that he was a Christian and encouraged her to read the Gospels of Jesus. She did. And the Gospels changed her life, she said. She realized that Jesus could not possibly have been an ordinary man and said and did the things that he did in that culture at that time. His words were too special. She said that his words led her to simply trust him. She began attending worship services with other Christians and was baptized. We, the faculty, the students, the outside visitors that came to hear her got to ask her questions. And someone asked her about how she came to believe in Christ's resurrection. Her answer, her answer we found fascinating. She did eventually read some of the evidence of the resurrection type books that are out there, but she said those are not what convinced her. She was actually convinced before she ever read those books. They were just helpful at addressing a few questions. She said she had come to believe in Christ's resurrection simply because she'd read Jesus' words and had come to trust him, trust him at his word, and realize that Jesus had actually predicted his own suffering, death, and resurrection. For her, if this Jesus that she trusted predicted his own death and resurrection, 
that was enough for her to believe. I was humbled to hear her simple statement of faith and prayed that my faith in Jesus and his word could be like hers. She also helped me realize again that despite the secular culture we live in, the Holy Spirit continues to call new people to faith in Jesus. In fact, and I love to cite this statistic, around the world, 500,000 plus new people come to faith in Jesus every week. He is at work. Despite our pessimism and frustration, the pessimism and frustration at least I feel about living in this world, if you feel it, I invite you to pray with me a prayer of repentance for the times I am and perhaps you are like the sons of thunder, James and John. We pray. Lord, you know well the unbelieving culture that we live in, that you have called us to serve in. You have taught us to pray for your return, and we do pray, amen, come Lord Jesus. But let that prayer be motivated by your grace and your plan for us and those you would call into your kingdom, not motivated by our own frustrations and impatience. Grant us your grace that you won for us when you set your face toward Jerusalem and gave your life as a ransom for many, conquering even death itself. Forgive us when we, like James and John, want to be harsh and unloving with our unbelieving neighbors and strengthen us to reach out with your wondrous gospel to them again and again so that your Holy Spirit can work faith in them when and where he wills it. In the name of Jesus, amen. We continue with our hymn.